Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today, we are addressing our dependency on Russian oil. And let's be clear, it will not be easy because some member states are strongly dependent on Russian oil. But we simply have to do it. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico Europe in Brussels. And you just heard Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, announcing a new round of sanctions against Russia in a speech to the European Parliament in Strasbourg. So today we will propose to ban all Russian oil from Europe this will be This will be a complete import ban on all Russian oil seaborne and pipeline crude and refined. The new sanctions package also includes removing Russia's largest bank, Sparebank, from the international payment system known as SWIFT. We finally de-swift Sparebank. Sparebank is one of the is the largest Russian bank. It holds round about 37% of the whole banking sector. And we will also de-swift to other major banks in Russia. By that, we hit banks that are systemically critical to the Russian financial system and Putin's ability to wage destruction. As we record this episode, the package is still a proposal. It will need the approval of all of the EU's 27 member countries to take effect. We'll get into how likely that is and what may be coming next on the sanctions front in just a moment with our podcast panel. And later in the podcast, we'll hear from Cambridge University Professor Helen Thompson about why oil drives so much of our politics today and why it's likely to do so for a long time to come as Europe tries to wean itself off Russian energy and move into a greener future. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. So a warm welcome to our senior trade correspondent with me here in Brussels, Barbara Moons. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Andrew. And joining us from a coffee house in Vienna, Chief Europe Correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Grüß Gott. Grüß Gott, Herr Kollege. Let's get uh, right to it and start with uh, the big news of the day, uh, today being Wednesday as we uh, record uh, this part of the podcast. And that is the announcement by the European Commission of a sixth round of sanctions 
Uh, Barbara, you've been reporting very closely on this. How has that proposal gone down? Because obviously it has to be agreed by all EU member states to take effect. Is there broad support for the proposal? Are there any fault lines here? You know, who is maybe putting up a bit of resistance? Yes, exactly. It was widely expected that at this point, uh, the EU was going to look at oil. So it's not an immediate ban. It's it's a phase out, um, as we now know, and include in six months and then refined oil products by the end of the year. It's now up for discussion between EU countries. And so the first things that we've heard today, Wednesday, coming from EU countries is that there, overall there is broad support. As you know, the Commission tests these uh, proposals before they actually send them to EU countries. But that being said, there are very big concerns still by Hungary and Slovakia. And that is despite the fact that they already got a longer phase-out period than the rest of the EU. So they would have until the end of 2023 for existing contracts. But they argue that's not enough to uh, kick off from Russian oil imports because they're much more dependent than others from these imports. Right. And it's harder for them to transition, uh, they would certainly argue anyway, because they're landlocked. They don't have ports where they can bring in large amounts of oil easily, you know, by tanker or whatever. So those are the two holdouts or they're the two that have expressed um, concerns and are asking for um, greater concessions than they've been given at the moment. But is your impression that overall the Commission has done a kind of reasonable job here of, of pre-testing this so that at least most of it can get through without great debate? I think at this point, it's hard to say. Um, Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the way that the Commission handles this, it's a tactic that has worked throughout the sanctions packages because they come out with the package and then it's it's very hard for EU countries to veto them. Sometimes they adjust them a little, like Germany with the coal ban. But this specific thing at this point seems very hard, both for Hungary and Slovakia. And they argue that it's not for political reasons, especially Slovakia, but really for economic reasons because the overall theme of these sanctions has been that they have to hurt Russia more than they hurt the EU. And they fear that that will not be the case if this exact proposal will go through. But obviously, there will be tremendous pressure from both the Commission and the other 25 countries to make sure that they get on board. Mm. Matt, there's obviously broader concern here. I mean, there has been a debate around this. First of all, to what extent would this really hurt Russia and damage Vladimir Putin and his war effort? And two, the possibility of some kind of blowback in Europe in terms of energy prices going up, Europe tipping into recession. And, you know, to use the phrase that Barbara uh, used and which we hear a lot, ends up actually harming the European Union while Vladimir Putin continues to rake in the cash. How big a risk do you think that is? Well, I think it is a risk, obviously, but you have to look at the larger picture here, which is that taken together, all of these steps are like a mosaic. And maybe, you know, this one set of sanctions on the oil is not going to, you know, really damage him that much. But I think it is also symbolically very important, again, to show that there is unity in Europe, even with, you know, these exceptions that they've built in for Slovakia and Hungary. But I think that at this stage, two months plus into this conflict for Europe to show that they're still willing to turn the screws on Putin is very important. And I think taken together, all of these measures do have a lot of impact and have already been devastating to the Russian economy. 
this one probably less so than some of the others because, as you say, in the short term, the price of oil is going to go up. Oil is a fungible commodity. I don't think the Russians will have much difficulty selling this oil that a lot of the Europeans aren't buying now to China and others. It might be a little bit more logistically difficult for them to do so. But at the end of the day, they're going to be fine. We've seen this with other countries that are facing similar sanctions, such as Iran, for example. Over time, they find ways to deal with this. The big question is, what happens with gas? Yeah, and if I can jump in there, that is definitely the big question. While we are discussing the oil sanctions, you feel that the mentality here in Brussels has really already gone to the next step because at a certain point you ran out of ammunition, right? We have these sanctions packages are always about much more than the most visible parts. Um, they are a lot about a lot of things, but at a certain point you just run out of option and you have to go to the most sensitive point, which is Russian gas imports. And you feel, I feel, but Matt, you can talk more about this, that even the very skeptical countries such as Germany are mentally starting to prepare and starting to think about, okay, if we do it, under which circumstances or conditions will it be? And we saw the same thing with the coal ban and with the oil ban that we went to a full-out veto and then went to, okay, we just have to think about what the smartest way to do is. Right. We certainly heard a bit of a change of tune, right? And partly as in particular, because so much hinges on Germany, as uh, Robert Habeck, the climate and economy minister, kind of went around trying to find other places or other ways to reduce uh, the dependency on Russian oil. He was in Poland recently, um, you know, looking at bringing in oil there. So, And they, the Germans say they've already reduced their dependency on Russian oil substantially and reckon they can get to zero by the end of the year. But gas is, is very different, Matt, right? I mean, gas is just so um, crucial to the German economy. Do you think they're going to be able to make the same kind of move there? I don't think so, because it is just too crucial to German industry in particular. And let's not forget that it's not only Germany that depends on German industry. We're talking about the entire industrial core of Europe here that extends well beyond Germany's borders, also into Poland, into the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, and so forth. So this would be potentially devastating. We don't really, I think, fully understand just what the economic impact would be. There are a lot of theories about what might happen, but until you actually do it, you're not going to know, I think. And you, you don't know at this point either how much LNG they would be able to bring in, what that would mean in terms of prices, actually, what that in turn would do to inflation with prices already skyrocketing. So you're right, Barbara, there is discussion about it. People are taking it seriously and sort of, you know, doing the math in a maybe more earnest way than they were a couple of months ago. But I think that the Germans in particular are still very, very far from agreeing to a gas embargo. Yeah, and what you say about, obviously, the rest of the countries and economies that will very much be affected, you saw the same thing with the oil ban, right? The, Germany didn't really do its PR right there, I think, but there was a large group of middle countries hiding behind Germany as they were also very happy to win some time to prepare and to lobby on the conditions, whereas Germany was getting all the blame that they didn't want to stop Russian oil imports. Right, and Hungary as well kind of played the bad guy, which they're quite happy to play sometimes, but they weren't the only ones. So you've, you've got Hungary, you have Italy, Austria, which are all extremely dependent on 
Russian gas. I also wonder, though, that if the Germans, having agreed to do the oil embargo and advocated for it, that they would say down the line, well, this is a bridge too far. We've agreed to do coal. We've agreed to do oil. But we just can't do gas without doing too much damage to the European economy. And they would try probably to couch it in those terms, not to talk about the German economy, but to talk about the impact it would have on the European economy. Right. That's something we've already heard uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, do make exactly that point, that he doesn't say it would just tip Germany into recession. He talks about the whole of the European economy. But that dependence on uh, Russian gas in particular, Matt, is, you know, the result of a policy in Germany that goes back decades. It's one you've been exploring, you know, in various stories in recent weeks. And you have another one which will be published by the time our listeners hear this, a dirty dozen uh, format of ours that we've used over the year to um, highlight certain people who may uh, have a certain responsibility for certain policies. Tell us how you put that list together and if there's any names in there that might surprise our listeners. Well, we should also remind listeners that The Dirty Dozen is a classic Hollywood film, which maybe some of uh, the younger folks out there aren't familiar with. But, uh, like anybody under 50? Yeah, yeah basically. A classic <laughs> of the Hollywood adventure genre. Yeah. Indeed. So that's the kind of rubric, as we call it. But tell our listeners a bit about, you know, how you came up with that list. And as I say, if there's anybody who, you know, might um, surprise people. I think there are probably a couple people who will surprise people or that they may not be familiar with. Some of them are familiar names, a couple of former chancellors of, of Germany, for example. But the point I was trying to make in this piece is that the support for Russia and engaging Russia in economic terms and in political terms over the past decade plus, really 15 years since 2008, beginning with Merkel's first term, I would say, goes really across German society, across the German establishment. It wasn't limited to one party, to a group of politicians, or to the infamous now Ruslan Verstea, the Russia apologists in Germany, it really became sort of the conventional wisdom that this was the only way to deal with Russia in the long term would be to bring them into the tent, to do business with them and um, reap the commercial benefits along the way, but that ultimately that was going to preserve peace in Europe. Matt, before you go, I just wanted to get your thoughts on one thing that seems pretty extraordinary from here, from the outside, which is why Germany in particular, Olaf Scholz and some others are still making such a big deal about the fact that the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, decided not to invite the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, to Kiev. As we know, he was all set to go with some other uh, presidents, presidents from the Baltic countries and from Poland. And the word came back from Kiev, actually, you're not welcome. As we've discussed, Steinmeier is one of the people associated with that Russia-friendly policy, if you like, uh, going back decades. But he was certainly a recent advocate of it. But this was weeks ago now. And yet we're still hearing, you know, leading German politicians, particularly Schultz talking about this and saying that it's a barrier to him visiting Kiev because Steinmeier wasn't invited. I mean, why, you know, Ukraine is at war at the moment, you know, under attack from Russia. Why does Germany not just let this lie and move on? 
Well, as you said, I'm in Vienna at the moment, and something very interesting uh, happened here yesterday that I think is analogous to the situation, which was that a bus, a public bus, was uh, stopped because the door wouldn't close. And so the driver got out of the bus to go and fix the door, but he forgot to put on the emergency brake. And then the bus rolled down the hill into a tree, which then fell onto a transformer and pushed the transformer into a truck. And a bunch of people were injured in the process. And I think that Schultz coming out... I'm looking forward to how you're making, going to make this exactly, connection. Go coming. ahead. So <laughs> Schultz backed himself into a corner here because his main political rival, the leader of the opposition, Friedrich Merz of the Christian Democrats, decided to go to Kiev this week, which is something that Schultz has steadfastly refused to do. And when he was asked about it, why he didn't go or hadn't been there yet, he told German television that it was because of Steinmeier's snub by the Ukrainians. But in fact, it really was because Merz had gone ahead of him, and I think he needed to find a convenient excuse for staying away. But what happened was this triggered a response by the Ukrainians, in particular the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany, Andrei Melnik, who accused Schultz of being what in German is called a beleidigte Leberwurst, which literally means an offended liver sausage, which is, you know, more meaningful in German than in English. And so it just resurrected this issue that had more or less been dead and has now created another furor between Kiev and Berlin and uh, is really diverting attention from everything else that is going on in the war and would be more important to discuss. I mean, I think if you're outside of Germany looking at this, you could have the impression that the German debates about the war are more to do about Germany than they are about what's happening in Ukraine. Right. I mean, of all the things to be getting hung, hung up on the moment, the kind of protocol of, you know, whether the president or the chancellor goes and, and that kind of thing just seems very, very secondary. And you could say that in some ways the German government in this sense is as politically blind as a bratwurst, to use another uh, meat-based German phrase. Um <laughs> Okay, Barbara, Matt, we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Coming up after this short break, Matt will bring us our feature interview with Helen Thompson on Europe's energy dilemma. Stay with us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Now we're going to hand things over to Matt, who spoke earlier this week to Helen Thompson. She's a professor of political economy at the University of Cambridge and the author of a new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Matt started by asking Helen Thompson about the book and the degree to which she believes our politics are still being driven by energy. Well, I think that there's two different things that are going on here. On the one hand, there was clearly a shift in 2019 to making climate change and the energy transition fairly central, in a sense, to everything in certainly European democracies, because if we take the politicians seriously when they said that they were committed to net zero by 2050, then pretty much everything had to be subordinated in politics to the scale of that task, because it's such an enormous change to try to bring about over really what in the big scheme of things is a a relatively short period of time. I think, though, what wasn't dwelt on in 2019 as that was happening were the difficulties around fossil fuel energy, energies in their own terms, in particular oil and the supply of oil to the world economy. And I don't think there was sufficient awareness of the fact that the world economy had basically been kept going in energy terms through the 2010s by the US shale oil boom. And that there perhaps was some reason, even before the pandemic struck, to think that at the very least the rate of growth of the shale boom was going to slow down. So we now find ourselves in a position, and this was true before the war started, so it was clearly true, I'd say, last autumn, where the supply of oil to the world economy looked constrained in relation to the volume of demand. And we could see, I think, then last autumn that this kind of energy politics was very much back to the fore. And you could see that particularly in the United States, because Biden had come in, kind of joined the net zero club in some sense, very much wanted to make climate the absolute priority of his administration, had started from the premise that fossil fuel energy would take care of itself for as long as it was needed. And he didn't really need an oil strategy, didn't need to encourage American shale oil producers to increase production and actually by last summer he was pretty much begging the OPEC plus countries which obviously include Russia to increase oil production to help him out. So I think we've now added into this the war situation and the issue of Europe's energy relationship with Russia. So actually I'd say that pretty much all politics at the moment is permeated in Europe anyway but not just in the end in Europe by the energy question. And that's before we even get on to the the problems that high energy prices have caused in places like Sri Lanka, Tunisia, Lebanon, places where we've seen you know some considerable economic chaos and political instability over the last month or so. It does seem though that in the in the American debate there's more of a sort of pragmatic approach towards energy and oil prices in particular, whereas in Europe, there's a bit of a moral dimension about it. How do you account for this difference? I mean, another example would be fracking, which is readily accepted in the United States. And in Europe, it's really looked at as sort of morally reprehensible. One of the arguments that one often hears about using LNG is that 
it's fracking gas, you know, as, as if the gas coming from from Russia had the stamp of approval of Greenpeace or something. And using fracking is sort of, you know, like killing kittens. Um, why do you think there is this kind of moral dimension to these questions? The thing that makes the United States politics around energy, I think, different than European countries is the fact that the United States is both now the world's largest oil and gas producer and it has a history of large-scale oil and gas production. It also has a period from sort of the 70s, I would say, to the end of the 2000s where its politics has to deal with the problem of foreign energy dependency. But it's also a period in which the United States is was still the world's dominant power and certainly was the world's dominant financial power and could use some of that power to ease the way in which it dealt with some of those problems. The combination of being the world's dominant power and still having some significant capacity for domestic production that turned out could really be seriously increased rapidly in the 2010s, I think is a very different position than the European countries, most of which have had a long history of foreign energy dependency and I think the strange thing in a way about the European situation and particularly the German situation where the foreign energy dependency problem has been so acute historically is that it really is a case of pick your poison do you want all the geopolitical and moral problems that come with Russian gas do you want to import more oil from the Middle East and the the Saudi regime? Do you want to get closer to the Iranians? Or are you willing to accept more liquid natural gas imports from the United States, knowing that, as you say, that it's fracking production techniques that have produced that gas? And the, the paradox and the disjuncture is that it really is, I think, choose your poison. And yet at the same time, a whole moral vocabulary, as you say, Matt, has been put onto the energy conversation as if somehow there's some ethically clean way out of all this, as if somehow you can just decide, okay, we'll import our energy from a place where it will be ethically okay to do so, regardless of the fact of whether there is any such place. <laughs> and so there's just been, in that sense, an absence of, of realism, both about where the physical supply of fossil fuel energy comes from, but also, and you can see this, I think, with the German-Russian energy relationship, not understanding what the geopolitical implications are for the energy-producing countries and the options that that gives them and the power that that gives them. So trying to see and assume that Russia would be a tame power in some sense in these terms with the geopolitical weapons it has at disposal is very naive. Right. I guess after the invasion of Crimea, the war in eastern Ukraine, the alarm bells were going off in many capitals in the West, I would say, regarding the degree to which this dependency had grown and was, was set to continue, obviously, with Nord Stream 2. Until recently, again, we heard that, well, you know, the Russians have always stuck to their agreements. They've never used gas as a geopolitical weapon. That's clearly changed now. Some people would say that was never true, you know, for smaller countries. What do you think the implications of Russia's turning off the gas recently in Bulgaria and in Poland will mean 
going forward for its energy relationship with Europe in particular, since this has always been kind of the main argument for maintaining this reliance? I mean, this is a really interesting question because as you sort of hinted at, there, you know, there's a clear example of this happening before, which was in January 2009, when as a consequence of the dispute between the Ukrainian government and Russian government and Gazprom about transit fees and Ukrainian gas prices, effectively Bulgaria ended up with no gas for a period of time in the middle of winter. And the commission in particular, you know, reacted to what happened in January 2009 and Bulgaria's predicament with a whole new round of we must break our dependency upon Russian gas. So, you know, we've been here before with one of the two countries. Right. And it should be said Bulgaria is 90%, more than 90%, I believe, dependent on Russian gas. Yeah. So, and then if you look at the story of, of what happened, you know, like thereafter, it's a, a story of failure to break away from Russian dependency and a very clear difference, including by the commission, in the treatment of Germany's energy relationship with Russia and Bulgaria's energy relationship with Russia. So whilst you know, in the end the commission doesn't do anything to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, it does quite actively act with the Obama administration to stop South Stream pipeline, which would have gone under the Black Sea from Russia to Bulgaria. An enormous amount of pressure was put on the Bulgarian um, government about that. I mean, on that, I mean... Putin simply reinvented it as Turkstream and took it to Turkey right. rather than to Bulgaria. But you could completely see the internal politics of the European Union and the way in which Germany's relationship had a privileged position over anybody else's, or certainly over Bulgaria's. I think that one of the questions now will be whether Bulgaria tries to react to what has happened by siphoning off gas that is going elsewhere through pipeline because Bulgaria is a transit mm-hmm. state. It's not simply, you know, receiving gas from Russia, it's going through Bulgaria and on to other European countries. If it were to do so, obviously I think that would deepen divisions within the European Union about this and it uh, and it would also would probably lead Putin and Gazprom to start thinking about cutting gas off to more, should we call them systemically important countries from the big picture point of view, including obviously maybe Austria and Germany. None of the gas to Germany would transit through Bulgaria. So I think that really the big question in a way is, is have European governments got the will really to accept much higher gas prices? Because if they have, then I think that they can you know, see out some of this pressure and show some sort of solidarity, to use that language, when Putin tries to pick off countries like he's doing at the moment in pulling out Bulgaria and Poland. But it does require a willingness to tolerate very considerable, I think, economic disruption. The title of your book is Disorder, uh, which sort of hints at how you see both the present and, and the future. But just to sum up, um, where does all of this leave us, do you think, in sort of the medium term, if we look over the next five or ten years, what kind of world are we going to be seeing? I mean, I think we're, we're going to be living in a, in a permanently with disorder for some time to come. I think that where energy 
is concerned, we're moving to a multi-energy world, and sometimes we've been living in a multi-energy world for some time, but as the energy transition moves on, that's going to become even more true. And this means that we're going to live and have to deal with simultaneously the economic and geopolitical dysfunctionality generated by fossil fuel energy and the geopolitical tensions and potential economic difficulties generated by green energy and that the dynamics are going to coexist with each other. So it's not that the green dynamics are going to replace in the short to medium term, they're all going to exist at the same time. And I think that that is going to shape a great deal of the political world. I think the other thing that's important to remember is is that from the point of view of many non-Western countries, what has happened as a result of the war coming on top of the energy shock that was already in place in the second half of, of last year, you know, has caused difficulties like way beyond anything that's happened in a Western country so far and compounded by the consequence of the difficulties in wheat markets given that you know so high a proportion of the world's wheat exports come from either Russia or from Ukraine and that's particularly consequential for the North Africa basically for the the southern Mediterranean countries including Turkey so i think this issue of the relationship between energy and food in the non-western parts of the world is going to be quite central to the geopolitical situation over the next few years. We'll have to leave it on that somber note, Helen. Thank you very much for your time. Your book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is very timely. It came out last month. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks to Matt for bringing us that discussion with Helen Thompson. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to or follow the podcast wherever you're listening so you get every episode as soon as it's published. You can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics. You can do that by emailing us. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 